Right, today, I want to talk about Hadassah or Esther and how she was positioned by God. This series begins today. It goes from today, Mother's Day, through Father's Day, and I and others are going to be sharing and preaching in this series. I'm going to start it off today talking about Esther, and the name of the series is Unexpected Heroes, Unexpected Heroes. We all know Esther after the fact of what all God used her, but we didn't know, we're really not as familiar with where she came from and where God found her to use her. So we're going to look at it. You know, there are two books in the Bible that are named for women. One of them is Ruth, the other is Esther. Both of the books are very peculiar in this fact that God is never mentioned. In Esther, not only is God not mentioned, but neither is this. Neither is Jerusalem, the temple, the priesthood, sacrifices. Somebody might ask, well, how in the world did this book get in the Bible? Well, pretty simple. God put it there. God is not mentioned in Esther, but God is present everywhere in the book of Esther because God is always working. This Bible history that we're looking at takes place in a palace at the highest levels of prominence and power. It involves the most powerful people on earth at that time. Chapter 1 tells us that this world kingdom was so large that it stretched from India to Ethiopia and all the way to Shushan, the summer palace of the kings in Persia. God was nowhere to be found, or at least they imagined, but I want to tell you something. Even though people might not like to retain God in their knowledge, like Romans 1 says, uh, the Bible says God is still working. He's always working. Daniel chapter 4 verse 17 sets the record straight. It says that God declares his ownership of this world and everything in it because he says it this way. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom Whoever he will, and he sets over it the lowest of men. Well, people may not want to talk about God, but that doesn't mean he's not present anyway. And just keep it in mind, you can never tell God to shut up and sit in the corner. <laughs> he's, just, he's just not going to do that. How many of you believe that God is sovereign, that God is large and he's in charge? Say amen. 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 Well, that's who our God is. Now, I want us to stand and I'm going to read the passage this morning. There's some words in there a little more difficult. And I'm going to read through verses 10 through 16 of chapter 4. And uh, this is only a launching point because we're going to look at the whole book of Esther this morning. I'm not going to read the whole book, but I'm going to refer to it. I'm going to describe what kind of sermon this is in just a moment. But uh, I want you to just listen as I read chapter 4, verse 10 through 16. Normally we all read together, but as I said, a little bit more difficult. So let me read it to us this morning. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to Esther, to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape the king in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, 
gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Here's a young woman who was made queen and didn't look for it. But we're going to see the story today as it unfolds. And here's what she said. I'm going to do the right thing. And if I perish, I perish. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together. We thank you for our moms. We thank you for every one of them. And Lord, we just uh, we pray that as we talk today that the application would be very clear of how every mom and every person, in fact, is brought to the kingdom, to the world for such a time as this. There's just no mistakes with you. Help us now as we look at this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I'm very thankful for my mom. Uh, she is now with the Lord, been there since about 2017. And uh, I, uh, I have all kinds of thoughts about my mom, but I think I can wrap it up this way. She really is significant to me because of this. If it were not for my mom, I would not be here. How many of you can say the same thing? <laughs> so, absolutely, mom was precious. So this is a story about God's sovereignty and about his providence. And some might think, well, uh, when I think about the sovereignty of God and so on, I think that providence and sovereignty are the same thing. Not exactly. Uh, God's sovereignty is, can be stated this way, and that is this, that God is in control of the outcomes. What God has foreordained will come to pass. His plan will prevail. God is going to bring it about. Then the other idea is, well, if that's, if that's sovereignty, then what is Providence. Well, providence is when God gets involved in the details. You know, sometimes many of us think, well, it's all going to work all out, but the details are kind of messed up. No, God's provident. God's in the steps and God is in the outcome. Sovereign and provident. And we see both of those things in our uh, narrative that we're looking at today. Somebody said this, they said that the devil is always in the details. Well, I'd like to say on the contrary, where God's plan is concerned, God is in the details and he is working everything out. So this is huge. Uh, now I'm going to, I'm going to do something this morning that's totally uncharacteristic for me. This is not a very good sermon. Um, in structure and in form, and that's just not a very good sermon. So if you're here and you're an aspiring uh, pastor, preacher, you're going to seminary for that or something, then I just want to tell you, don't copy this. But I think uh, I'm going to give you a little history, and I'm going to make one point, and it'll be worth it. So I want you to let me do that with you. It's an, a rambling overview of the book of Esther. I'm going to introduce you to the main characters, tell a few details, and then I'm going to just show you how incredibly important this single event was in history, it mattered for the Jews, and it matters for you. First of all, the setting, what's going on? Well, we open our adventure, we go to a lavish palace. This is chapter one in the city of Susa or Shushan, which was the name of the citadel in Persia, far east in modern day Iraq. The dates of this escapade are 485 to 465 BC. By the way, the people, the places, the times, and the events of all of these things are verifiable not only because the Bible says so, which is number one, but also secular history records all of this and these people, I love that about the Bible. It's not fictitious, fictitious places, fictitious people, and just this mystical, no, no, no. These are real people, real places, real times, and real events. And we're gonna look at that this morning. So the Jews at the time of the writing had, some of them had returned to Jerusalem under a guy named Zerubbabel and they had rebuilt a temple. Not as big and glorious as the first one, but they had rebuilt a temple. But the walls 
had not been built yet at the time of this writing. That happens under Nehemiah. So we have Jews. They're living in squalor in Jerusalem, and they're living in servitude and a little bit of fear in this Far East Kingdom, Persia, today Iran. So that's the setting for this historical event. Now in focus today are the Jews that are living in the land of their captivity. How did they become captives? Well, according to God's prophecy that he told them time and again through the prophets, Babylon was going to come and going to take them away, and they did. Nebuchadnezzar came, 586 B.C., and carried them away in several, in several different deportations, carried them away, and they found themselves in Babylon. Well, world kingdoms don't last because God puts them up and knocks them down, and the Medes and the Persians came along, and they took over. So you have the Jewish people still in captivity but under new management. They were under Babylon, now they are under the Persians. And here are some people that are very important. There's a man, verifiable man, by the name of King Xerxes. Uh, In your Bible, it may say Ahasuerus, that's a title, but his name is Xerxes. He's on the throne, he has just returned from putting down a rebellion in Egypt, and the Jews got caught up in the political and military maneuvers of this king. He wanted to invade Greece. He was powerful. He was the son of Darius the Great, the Mede, and he was just, his word was law. That's King Xerxes. Then a queen. Her name was Vashti. This is all in chapter one. King Xerxes, after his return from Egypt, decided he wanted to impress everyone and show how great and rich and wealthy and capable of handling Greece his kingdom was. And so he invited the governors and the rulers and the leaders to the palace, the citadel at Shushan. He's going to celebrate all of these things that I just mentioned. And he wanted to gain momentum for going back to attack the Greeks. Well, they decided to have a period of opulence and they decided to show all of their glory. And so you can read the passage, it talks about the, how the place was decorated and who was there and all they did. And so what happened was they had a huge feast. Now, Americans are known for their, you know, partying and feasting and party hardy and all of that stuff. But I want you to know that this feast lasted 180 days. That's amazing. So as they were coming to the end of this, it was decided that they would have a crescendo to close the thing off of a one-week super, super duper. Now, I don't know how you keep coming up with wow factors after 180 days, but they were going to have another week, the final week. And in this one, the men were going to be with the men and the women were going to be with the women. And they were just going to put on seven days of glory like they'd never seen before. Well, King Xerxes got really drunk. Nothing ever comes good of drunkenness. And so he got really drunk and he decided that uh, he'd run out of things to impress people with. So he called for Vashti. Vashti was his beautiful, immaculately beautiful queen. And he wanted her to come parade herself in front of all of these men. Well, it was against their own laws and I won't even go into that. But she refused. Well, we ought to give three cheers for Vashti. She just wasn't going to do it. So what happened? Well, the wise men, the seven princes... They all warned the king that if he didn't act, every wife in the kingdom would see it as permission to rebel. He needed to do something and do it right now. He did two things. He got rid of the queen. And number two, they, they formulated a, 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 an edict from the king that says every man's got to be king of his own castle and all the women have to do what he says. How, how'd that work out worldwide all through history? Well, it hadn't worked out very good. Well, anyway, so there's two more people come on the scene, Mordecai and Hadassah. 
You say, you keep calling her Hadassah, don't we know her as Esther? Yes, but her Jewish name was Hadassah, which means fragrance, and her name was changed, and we'll come to that in just a moment. Well, King Xerxes got sober. He missed his queen Vashti, but he couldn't do anything about it because the law of the Medes and Persians can never be canceled, revoked, or changed. So his advisors advised him to do a talent search and to search the entire realm for someone to replace his beloved queen. King's got to have a queen. And so Mordecai comes on the scene. He was a descendant of Kish. That means Kish was the father of King Saul. And this man, Mordecai, was among the captives in this place called Shushan, a palace. He had adopted Hadassah, his niece, and the reason was simple. Her parents were killed when Nebuchadnezzar's men took over the city of Jerusalem. So we're going to have this, this talent search, and the qualifying factors for the talent search were very, very simple. Beautiful, young virgins. That's what was required, and they were going to gather them from all over the place and only going to pick one of them. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 5 in your Bible, 2-5. It says, in Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the young woman was lovely and beautiful." When her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was. When the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace, into the care of Haggai, custodian of the women. So she was very beautiful, and so therefore she met the qualifications. Now, I want to stop and ask one question. Who is it that gave Esther her extraordinary beauty? Who, who is it that makes anybody the way they are? God. God did. So God's planning ahead. So he, Esther met the qualifications. Mordecai told Esther, look, do not reveal your Jewish identity. It is probably at this point that she was told, if you say Hadassah, they're going to know you're a Jew, you know you're a Jew, and there's going, to be, there's going to be an issue with that. So just say your name is Esther. Esther means a star. Well, she is a rising star, so to speak. But Esther, and so that's what she was known at, as from then on. Now, let's understand this, if we can, for a moment. Now, just picture this. All of you people that might be in situations and difficulties in life and you'd have, you know, you'd have never forecast your life to be exactly like it is and you wouldn't be either in the situation you're in or under the circumstances you are. Oh, if you could change some things, you could go back 20 years, you'd do this different than that. Now just listen for a moment. Understand what's going on. Here is a chaste, young Jewish woman living in a foreign land and a culture. Soldiers came to the house, sent by the king, and she was recruited to be a part of the harem of the king of the world. She's going to be a plaything whether she's going to be queen or not. She didn't raise her hand and volunteer for this. She didn't say, oh, how exciting to be. No, no, no. This was, a, this was anathema to her. So just imagine as the events are going on and the door, and they come and knock on the door. They say, we've heard there's a beautiful young woman here. Bring her out. What? No, no. And so, I mean, and all this happens and maybe even she tried to hide. We don't know. But they found her. 
There was no resisting the king and his soldiers. This is Persia, and there was no resisting this king. And so they take her, and so just imagine the weeping and crying, oh, God, please save me, help, no. And she's just thinking about all, just think about all the things that are going on. This is what's happening with Hadassah. Well, by providence, Esther found favor with Haggai, the custodian of the women. That's verse 9. She found favor with everyone she met. That's verse number 15. And eventually she found favor with King Xerxes himself. That's verse 17. And she became the queen, Queen Esther. And she got there because of her beautiful looks and her beautiful spirit and because God put her there. I want you to notice something here. It was all about God and what God was doing Because God knew what was coming and he was getting Esther into position. Key thought of everything I'm saying. Esther was positioned by God. I've been saying this for weeks. I've been hitting this point over and over. Your life's not a happenstance, an incident. It's not an accident. It's not just an uh uh-oh and it's not just fate. Your life, man, woman, boy, girl, everything. No, no, no positioned by God because there's someone to influence. There's someone that God wants you to reach out. There's something God has for every single one of his children. So important for us to understand. God did not see all of these things happening and just say, oh, I never knew that was coming. Oh no. Because you see, God is eternal. The eternity of God. What does that mean? That means God is not on the timeline of history. God is above, outside of, and transcendent to history. And he sees everything that's happening from the beginning to the end. How many of you believe in an eternal God? Say amen. Amen. Well, then time is in his hands. He's not beholding to time. He is in control of time. This is huge. Esther's every circumstance and Esther's very beauty was orchestrated by God for his purpose. And she was made queen four years after Vashti was removed. Two more people, Big Than and Teresh. You say who? Big Than and Teresh, chapter 2, verse 19 to 23. You can read it in an afternoon reading. Mordecai got a job at the king's gate. In other words, he was a government official of some kind because it was at the king's gate that all the business was transacted, even in the New Testament, at the gate. So he did something. Was he an accountant? I don't know. Bean counter? Who knows? He was at the king's gate. He wanted to be there so that he could keep an eye and watch what was going. Well, while he was at the king's gate, he heard of a plot of two men who wanted to kill the king. They were doorkeepers. Who knows why they wanted to kill him, but they were going to kill Xerxes. Notice that Mordecai, who had been carried away captive in the first place and his niece has just been carried away to be in the harem of the king and has become the queen. When he heard this news, these people are going to kill the king. He didn't say, well, good enough for him. That's not what he did. He didn't do that at all. Folks, it is always right to do right. How many of you believe that's true? How many of you believe it's always right to tell the truth? Say amen. How many of you believe it's always right to do right? The right thing to do was to defend this man against those who would assassinate him. And so what did he do? Well, he let it be known. First of all, he got word to Esther. Esther got word to whoever needed to tell the king. The king got word, investigated it. And these two men, Big Than and Teresh, were hung. They died for their plans. Mordecai was immediately forgotten. Nothing was done for him. He wasn't rewarded. But they did write his name down in the chronicles of Shushan. There's another man who comes along by the name of Haman the Agagite, chapter 3. This, I told you this is a history lesson with a point. Haman the Agagite, chapter 3. He's a descendant of Agag. He was an Amalekite who 
Saul was supposed to eliminate during his lifetime. The Amalekites had done everything to upset, destroy, and kill the Jews when they were coming into the land, and God wanted them destroyed. And so Saul did not do what God told him to do. And so one of the descendants, a man by the name of Haman, wormed his way into the favor of Xerxes. He became his prime minister, as it were. He was extremely rich, he was very ambitious, and he had a seething hatred for the Jews. While all the king's men and women were bowing to Haman, Mordecai, the Jew, who had a job at the gate, and this man would come out in and out in front of him, he would not bow. He disclosed the fact eventually, Mordecai did, that he was a Jew. Ah, this ancient blood feud between Saul's descendants and the descendants of Haman or the Agagites or the Amalekites, there was this ongoing hatred that had gone on for centuries like that. And so it rose to the surface. Saul should have obeyed God way back at Gibeah, but he didn't. So what did Haman do? Haman used his position to trick the king into issuing a decree. He didn't just kill Mordecai. He came up, he said, boy, this is my chance. Once and for all, we are going to get rid of not just Haman, but we're, or not just Mordecai, but we're going to get rid of all the Jews everywhere. Has this ever happened more than, did this happen more than once in the Bible? Yes. Has it happened more than once since the Bible? Yes. Now listen, they were chosen according to a throwing of the dice, so to speak, Purim, poor, P-U-R, cast the lot, they were determined to be eliminated on the 12th, in the 12th month in the 12th year of Xerxes. That is five years after, after Esther was made queen. By this time, the honeymoon is long over with the king. And the decision was made to eliminate the Jews. A date was set. Now, I want you to notice something, that the king didn't know who this people group was. He just knew that Haman had somebody in mind. He called them rebels. He called them troublemakers and said they need to be eliminated and cleansed from the kingdom for the good of the king. And so Haman had this in mind. He had money and he had power and he, had, he was willing to pay for it. And so Haman used his money and power to blind the mind of the king. And here's what it says in chapter 3, verse 9. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring into the king's treasury. Did you know that money rules in the world of politics? How do you believe that's true? Well, of course it is. It was then, it is today. Nothing changed. Money, 10,000 talents. You say, is that a lot? Well, if we took all the offerings of the church since I've been here, since 2001 and added them together, it would not come up to 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money. And so 10,000 talents. And I'm gonna put that into the king's treasury. Well, when the decree was made known, the city was in a panic but what did Haman and Xerxes do? Chapter three, verse 15 says they went in, sat down and drank. They said, let's just go have a drink. These guys are going crazy out there, but it's best for the kingdom. There's another actor in this story, God. God is the primary character in every story. In fact, when you say history, that word, truly it's his story. God wasn't surprised by any of the schemes of Haman. Haman, like many before him and many since, was a puppet of Satan. Haman thought it was his idea, but Satan was in charge. He was trying to eliminate the Jews. Satan was because salvation is of the Jews. He was trying to eliminate the Jews because a future seed of Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, a future seed of the loins of Abraham would be the Messiah. There have been many puppets of Satan. Pharaoh was Satan's puppet when he said, 
throw the boys to the crocodiles and let's get rid of them. There's too many of them. But the truth is his army got thrown into the Red Sea. Sennacherib was the Assyrian puppet that Satan inspired to try to wipe out Jerusalem. But instead he got wiped out 180,000 at once. Athaliah, the wicked Baal-worshipping granddaughter of Omri of the northern kingdom was Satan's puppet. And she came within one step of eliminating the entire line of David the Bible says there would always be a king, there would be a king sit on the throne of David in his line. She came close. She eliminated them all except one, Joash, and then she herself got eliminated. Who can forget Hitler, the 20th century marionette of Satan who sought to eliminate the Jews? God is involved. God is the one who stepped in. God stepped in and he placed this little virgin girl, Hadassah, Esther, the beauty queen, he put her in the right place at the right time under the right circumstances. And here's what she did. She trusted God. She obeyed her uncle who was her adopted father. She stood up and spoke up instead of saying quiet. And she saved the entire nation of the Jews. Mordecai revealed the plot to Esther. He warned her that it was time to go before the king and to plead for her people. Now, folks, Mordecai was dressed in sackcloth and ashes and he was praying. Verse three of that chapter four, and in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Amazing. I read you the passage from chapter four, verse 10, down through verse 16. And I have to confess to you this morning that my prayer life goes something like this. I, I, I pray over my meals. How many of you pray over your meals? I pray as I lie down on my bed at night and I thank the Lord for the day and I thank you for what I, I mean, and if I have something to confess, I confess it. If I have something on my mind, I pray about it and I pray for rest and pray for the next day. I get up in the morning and I try to say, instead of, oh Lord, it's morning, I try to say, good morning, Lord. So I, I try to greet the Lord in the morning and I pray like that. And then, you know, come to church and we have staff meeting prayer. And then we go, I'm just confessing, I'm just telling you the truth. But you know, when I really get serious is when I'm hurting. I really get serious when there's pain. I really get serious when there's a crisis. I really get serious when some, hey, I just want you to know somebody's in a crisis all the time. I want you to know something else. I want you to know that this country, this nation, our people, our children, the next generation, it's crisis time. I wish I could say to you that I walk and talk and eat and sleep and breathe in the Lord's presence with the purpose of prayer that my every other breath would be lifting it up to God, but I'd be a liar to tell you that. This is confession time for me. But I want you to know something. When these pressing moments come, God invites us into his presence to pray. And this is what this passage is all about. I mean, it was crucial. The Jews are going to be eliminated. Everybody's going to die. And so what did they do? They stopped everything. I just wonder, are we praying concerning today's satanic puppets that are propagating stuff on our children, students, on our faith and our future? Think about some of these things. Always know this, that God was working when Esther was taken from her home to be part of the king's harem. It wasn't, it wasn't seamless and it wasn't painless, but God was working. God was working when Haggai favored her. God was working when she went to the king and was chosen queen. God was working when the crisis came and Esther's uncle Mordecai, who had saved the king's life earlier, came front and center to decry the coming disaster. God was working. God is working. God was working. God will work. God was working when King Xerxes couldn't sleep 
And he decided to read the Shushan Chronicles and had somebody bring them in. And he read and found out about Mordecai and asked the question, was anything ever done for him? Nothing. We just recorded it. Nothing was ever done. He says, all right then. He said, and it just happened that walking in at that time was Haman that was coming to talk about the gallows he had to hang Mordecai on it. And he came in at that moment and the king said, well, look, here comes Haman. Haman, I want you to take Mordecai, march him through the streets of the city, put him on my steed, put royal, put royal apparel on him, put a crown on his head and have everybody bow down to him. I mean, God was working. God reversed everything. God gave courage to Esther when she said, I will go to the king's presence and if I perish, I perish. God gave grace to Esther when the king extended his scepter and said, whatever you want, up to half the kingdom. God gave salvation to the Jews when Esther planned the two banquets and revealed the plot of Haman and purpose to counter command. And God gave justice when Haman was hanged on his own gallows. And I just want to say, folks, don't fret. Do not fret. God is working and there will be a gallows waiting for all of God's, all of Satan's minions. Now, our unexpected hero, this is the series from today through Father's Day. Our unexpected hero today is this woman, Esther. And how big is this event? This event that resulted in a holiday called Purim means casting lots, two days that they remember this deliverance. How important is it? Well, it doesn't get any bigger than this. Ezra chapter 7, you don't have to go there, but in Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, we meet a man called Ezra. And here's what it says in that passage. It was in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes that he went with the blessing of the king. He would have been the target of Haman had he not been saved along with everyone else in Jerusalem as one of the provinces by Esther's heroic acts. Listen to this, Nehemiah chapter two and verse number one talks about Nehemiah setting before the same king, Xerxes. It was in his 20th year. He was in his last year. We know a lot about, and, and Nehemiah tells him he wants to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. Now just, he's, oh, that's wonderful, but just stop for a minute. Stop. Ezra, their story, Ezra's story, Nehemiah's story would not exist had it not been for a woman. Named Esther, who went before the king and said, if I perish, I perish. We know all about the wall of Nehemiah. We know all about the great scribe, the ready scribe of the Lord, Ezra, who had studied in his heart to obey the Lord's command and to teach it in Israel. We knew all about it, all about Nehemiah. But let me tell you something. The ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah doesn't happen without Esther. You know what? There's just no unimportant people in God's kingdom. Are you the child of God this morning? Say Amen. I want to tell you something. You're important in God's scheme. And he has something, somebody to influence, somebody to teach, somebody to help, somebody to touch. And you are on this scene right now for such a time as this. I know God could have saved the Jews another way, but he didn't. He chose Esther. Ladies, listen as I quickly go through this this morning. These are some very clear points that I want you to carry with you. This is a history lesson with a single point, and that point is you matter, mom. Motherhood matters. Womanhood matters. Oh, it matters. First thing I'd like to tell you is God has you where he wants you because God has you in position. I'm sure that at the moment everything was happening, little Hazahadassah didn't know what in the world was happening. How could God be in this? I want you to know God is always in it. 
God has you where he wants you. God has you in position. God knows who you are. Had a a fragrance, going to become Esther, a star. God knows where you are. She is going to have this incredible privilege. She's going to be posted in a palace. But many times others are posted in poverty, posted in penury, posted in problematic situations. And God is in charge. God knows your situation. He's not unaware. And always know that when we pray, we are not about informing God of what's going on. We are about collaborating with God together with what he has going on. God knows your powerlessness to change it. Some are allowed like Esther to be an orphan. Some are allowed like to be widows like Naomi and Ruth. Some are allowed to be in hard circumstances. But the Bible wants us to teach us something is be faithful, be prayerful, be available. Second thing I want you to see in the story and understand is God is working in ways you cannot see. We just can't see it. Only he can see it. And the truth is, is that he's working in ways you can't see and he is adjusting your position. She's already in Shushan. Now she's going to be in the palace where she can have the ministry that God wants her to have. God is working in the palace today and he's working on the playgrounds today. God was working with Jacob when his father-in-law tricked him. God was working with Joseph when his brothers sold him and then Potiphar lied about him. God was working with Esther when her beauty entrapped her and carried her to the palace to be put in the king's harem. God is working in your life today even when you can't see it. And I want you to understand and take it with you that your circumstances are never out of God's control. Never. Oh, He has us in his hands and he is in the father's hands and everything that happens to us in our lives that are believers happens in his hands. So important. Your circumstances are never out of God's control. The third thing, God will reward you when people forget you. You know, that's just a bad thing we do. People do great things and they serve in incredible ways. And sometimes we give them a pat on the back and forget them. Well, God is getting you and us in position to be useful. He's not forgetting us. Mordecai saved the king, but he was unrewarded. But God will reward us. Maybe not now, but he will do it in his time and in the right way. So as the scriptures say, do not be weary in well-doing because we will reap if we do not give up. Number four. God is sovereign. Life is never out of control. (laughs) I wrote it this way. God is in position to control our position. In other words, he's in a situation. God is God and he is always in a position to control our position. That's chapters three, five to six. God's will prevails. Saul failed to eliminate the Amalekites. Well, God's gonna finish the job. God's control is faultless. Nothing ever gets out of his control. Satan could do no more to Job than he allowed. He can do no more to us than God allows. Listen to this passage. Isaiah 46, nine and 10. I don't think you have it on your scripture sheet there. Just write the reference. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all of my pleasure. Well, it's the good pleasure of God to crucify his own son, Jesus, for our sins so that in him we can have forgiveness. This was God's pleasure, his plan, and he did it. 
Number five, God is provident when he asks us to do difficult things. How many of you have ever been in a difficult situation? Just raise your hand. <laughs> God is provident. That means he's controlling the steps. Verse chapter four, verse eight. Esther, go stand alone. Stand before the king uninvited. And folks, when we think that God has asked too much of us, just remember that he is with us. And when the burden seems unbearable, just remember he will carry us. Oh, what the New Testament Christian has for a blessing. The Bible says in John, we're coming to it in 14 and 15, that he's that by way of the Holy Spirit. He's not just our rear guard and he's not just going before us. He's our, he is the Lord at our side, but he's also in us. He never leaves us. Listen to Isaiah 43, two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall flame scorch you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And when you're asked to stand alone, you are never alone. You are never alone. Young people, students, kids, children. Oh, the pressure, the peer pressure, the cultural pressure. What's being pushed on you today, keep God in mind, keep God in your heart, keep your eyes on the cross, hold on to the truth, believe in Jesus and do what is right. It's always right to do the right thing. It is always right to hold on to Jesus. God was with Joseph in the bottom of the pit. God was with Joseph in Pharaoh's prison. God was with David when he was hiding in the caves. God was even with disobedient Jonah in the belly of the fish. God was with Elijah when he was running for his life. God was with the three Hebrew boys in the midst of Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. God was with Daniel in Darius's lion's den. And God was with Esther in the court of the king. And God will be with you too when you stand. This is a story about a young woman who stood alone before the king of the world and God stood with her. Your story is about standing up to the king of this world, not listening to the prince of the power of the air, doing the right thing and standing up as a mom in your home with your children, trusting him, believing that he has you in this position. Your story is about standing up to the king of this world and you can get victory in front of him too. You know, heroic women say yes to purity. Heroic moms say yes to wisdom. And they put their calling as mom first. Heroic moms are everyday heroines, standing up for right every day of their lives. And on your sheet, it says heroic women rest in the sovereignty of God because his purpose will prevail. And heroic women count on the providence of God because he is in the steps. Not every step is a comfortable step, but every step is a guided step and a step with God's presence. The evangelist in me looks at this story and backs up and says, <clears throat> in this story, there was a capricious king who sometimes got drunk that only did things according to what advanced he himself and his kingdom. But when Queen Esther came before him and made this request, he extended this golden scepter and said up to half the kingdom. Well, that was what a capricious king did. Well, we don't come before a capricious, volatile, self-centered, egocentric. That's not who we come before day to day. You see, we as believers have a, we have a permission slip and an invitation 
to in times of need come before the throne of grace and ask for God to help us. And we have it, Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. I just wanna ask you the question, are we using that permission slip? Are we believing in his sovereignty? Are we understanding that he is with us and he will never leave us or forsake us? Do we believe it? And I wanna say to every mom in every hard situation, he's with you. And I wanna say to every dad and every father and every child and every mother, I wanna say to every one of you, he is with you. He knows you, he cares, and you've got an instant. Listen, why would the king of the universe who died for you and made you his child not extend his grace to you? Why would he say, I don't wanna hear? No, 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 we, we are his bride. You see, king Xerxes extended the scepter to his bride. Our king, Jesus, always extends his scepter to his bride. How many of you are glad that Jesus loves you today? Say amen. How many of you are glad that he's the king and we're not beholden to an earthly king? He's the king. Are you glad that you can go to Jesus in time of need? Do you believe it? Say amen. Well, let's do it. Do it. Maybe you're here today and you're not a child yet. You've yet to believe. But let me tell you what kind of king Jesus is. He's already told us in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and him that comes to me, I will never cast out. You, you want a king like Jesus? Come. Receive him, believe him, trust him, confess your sins and say, save me, Jesus, him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Ah, what a wonderful promise.